This morning again we'll be looking at the meeting which Nicodemus had with the Lord Jesus Christ and his conversation with the young rabbi from Nazareth, the carpenter from Nazareth. And see how this meeting brought from Jesus the words, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, Nicodemus' entry into the pages of scripture was brief. But if he hadn't sought out Jesus, perhaps we would not have had this wonderful passage in John chapter 3 and the truth of God's word. What Jesus said to Nicodemus equally applies to everybody. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so we read just a few verses in John chapter 3, just to refresh our, our memories. And, uh, starting at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The qualification set by God for all to gain entry into his kingdom is being born again. Now, if you've been following these talks on this challenging subject, one which is ridiculed quite often by people, abused by some, ignored and brushed aside as unimportant by others. Nevertheless, whatever man's reasonings or actions, it doesn't change what the Son of God said, he must be born again. And so the question we must all ask ourselves is, am I a born again? The question is not, am I a member of an earthly church? Am I a good living person? Have I been baptized? Do I take communion? Do I live by the golden rule? We could keep going on with 
suggestions such as those, all of which are good in themselves, but none will get me to heaven. For Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We will look sometime at the life of Nicodemus later on after his conversation with Jesus and we'll see that it definitely changed the way Nicodemus looked at this man, Jesus of Nazareth. However, we have been going through and explaining what being born again means and what it doesn't mean. And before we leave this theme, theme of being born again, we discussed being born again and baptism. What is the connection, if any, between being born again and baptism? And we saw that baptism is not a condition of salvation. But where has the teaching that baptism and salvation are one and the same thing? Where does it come from? Now we're going to look and see if we can explain in simple terms where this error has crept in. We need to take a look at the Roman Catholic Catechism. And we look at that in conjunction with the Book of Common Prayer and the Anglican Catechism to throw some light on this particular and important point. Now, a while back we reminded ourselves what a catechism is. One description says, a book of questions and answers about religion used for teaching religious doctrine, especially of a given church. The Roman Catholic Catechism in this respect says the Catechism of the Catholic Church contains the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church between its two covers. Though this nearly 800 page work may appear daunting, its rich history, essential information and easy reference guide make it a must for anyone curious about the Roman Catholic Church. So with that introduction from the Catechism we will go on later to look at various things within that Catechism. Now it's important to realise that tradition within the Roman Catholic Church is given at least equality with the scriptures. So I have a copy of the, the Catechism and there is an index giving proofs as to where the statements of doctrine within the Catechism come from. We have the whole uh, Catechism, then at the back we have these, this index. There are 19 pages 
of scripture, sacred scripture references, including those from the Apocrypha, and an equal number of references and pages and quotations from canon law, liturgy, and ecclesiastical writers, the saints and people like that. And so we have a, a good number of verses from scripture, which they claim backs up their doctrine, and we have an equal number of uh, lists of people and uh, canon law and that type of thing to back up some of the statements within the Catechism. Another thing we must bear in mind that teachings from the various councils of the Church, such as the Council of Trent, which sat in 1545 to 1563, teachings and doctrines from them, although perhaps formulated many years ago, are still binding on all Roman Catholics. I was reading something in the dog from the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, chapter three twenty-five and page three four nine. And it's just a point here about the infallibility of the Pope. It says the Pope is the infallible teacher. The Roman Pontiff head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office. When as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful, who confirms his brethren in the faith, he proclaims in an absolute decision a doctrine pertaining to faith and morals. For that very reason, his definitions are rightly said to be irreformable by their very nature and not by reason of the assent of the church. As a consequence, they are in no way in need of the approval of others and do not admit of appeal to any other tribunal. For in such a case, the Roman pontiff does not utter a pronouncement as a private person, but rather does he expound and defend the teaching of the Catholic faith as the supreme teacher of the universal church, in whom the church's charism of infallibility is present in a singular way. So with those few things in mind, we'll just take a look at a couple of the teachings within this catechism. And then we will look at it in relation to the subject which we're going to discuss, baptism and being born again. But first, let's look at a few general ones. In relation to Muslims, here's what the Roman Catholic Catechism states, paragraph 841. The Muslims, these profess to hold the faith of Abraham. And together with us, they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge, on the last day. They profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us, they adore the one 
merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. We believe, of course, that Jesus Christ will, in fact, execute the final judgment in, at the great white throne under the decree of God his Father. But how can the Roman Catholic Church agree that the Muslims and their faith is the same as that of Holy Scripture? Here is something from the Quran. The Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than God's apostle. God is but one God. God forbid that he should have a son. That's from 4171. And then another one. Those who say the Lord of mercy has begotten a son preach a monstrous falsehood at which the very heavens might crack. 1988. Uh, another one in 1929. God forbid that he himself should beget a son. We as Christians, born again believers, worship the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But the Roman Catholics can worship a God who has no son. When that day of judgment does dawn, they will find who is the judge of all the earth. So that's just as regards the Muslims. We'll, we'll look at something else in a moment. Let's first read in Genesis chapter 3. The story of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and indeed gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. The lie of Satan. Ye shall be as gods. Now what does the Roman Catholic Church say? 
paragraph 460. For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. Get that? For the Son of God became man so that we might become God. The only begotten Son of God wanting to make us sharers in his divinity assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. You know this teaching is a bit like the Mormons who aspire to becoming gods and people who practice yoga seeking to awaken the God within us. We shall never assume the divinity of God. It's the lie of Satan still being told to people by Satan down through the ages. And then we must look at all the false teaching, especially in relation to Mary, and it must be avoided. Paragraph 966 says, Finally the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of, stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things so that she might be the more fully conformed to her son, the Lord of lords and conqueror of sin and death. The assumption of the Blessed Virgin is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. Do you get that? We have a hope that we will rise again because of Christ's resurrection. He was the forerunner. But they're saying here is a singular participation in her son's resurrection and an anticipation of the resurrection of other Christians. There is no reference at all to Mary being the Queen of Heaven. But if you look at Jeremiah chapter 7, where some of the children of Israel were worshipping the Queen of Heaven, what does God say? Therefore thus saith the Lord, speaking of those who were worshipping the Queen of Heaven, Behold mine anger and my fury shall be poured out on those who were worshipping the Queen of Heaven. goes on to say about Mary, In giving birth you kept your virginity. In your dormition you did not leave the world, O Mother of God, but were joined to the source of life. You conceived the living God, and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. She is the mother in the order of grace. Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was born free from original sin. The immaculate conception as they talk about. Mary herself said, of course, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Saviour. 
she recognized and saw her need of a saviour and that saviour was of course the Lord Jesus Christ the Bible says too that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God it also says there is none righteous no not one but the church says no no that's all wrong Mary was born without sin I was reading an article by a man called Henry Grattan Guinness who lived quite a few years ago but in a book Romanism and the Reformation here's what he had to say about some of the Roman Catholic doctrine remember that there is only one mediator between God and man that there is but one sacrifice for sins offered once for all and forever through the one mediator by the one sacrifice draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you you need no mediator between yourself and Christ the priest is a false intruder there Jesus called you to come to himself he is both human and divine he is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh yet without sin God is in him he is the one with us and one with God suffer nothing to come between your soul and him suffer no saint no angel no virgin no priest to come between you and Jesus Christ go to him for the pardon of your sins make to him your confessions he can absolve you and will yea he does if you truly believe in him priestly absolution is a lie it is a blasphemous pretense the sentence I absolve thee whether from the mouth of a Romish priest or a Protestant minister is profane be not deluded by it your fellow sinner cannot absolve you from the sins you have committed against God turn from these idols and vanities Jesus is all you need his blood is sufficient to atone and cleanses you who simply trust in him from all sin search the scriptures they testify of him come to him that you may have life his heart is touched with the feeling of our infirmities none can sympathize as he can none can help as he to you to each one he says him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out heaven and earth shall pass away but my words shall not pass away <coughs> that was by Henry Grattan Guinness many years ago the trouble is many Christians have a very poor idea of the erroneous teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and that just gives us a background 
to what is in the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church in a general way. But now let us look specifically as we are seeking to see where the doctrine of salvation through baptism comes from. Now it's divided into various paragraphs. In paragraph 1238, here's what it says. The baptismal water is consecrated by a prayer. The church asks God that through his son the power of the Holy Spirit may be sent upon the water so that those who will be baptized in it may be born of water and the Spirit. Holy, I pray that the Holy Spirit will be sent upon the water so that those who will be baptized in it may be born of water and the Spirit. I wonder if you think that sounds a little bit like the Anglican baptismal church service. Here's what it says. The Book of Common Prayer. Regard, we beseech thee, the supplications of thy congregation. Sanctify this water to the mystical washing away of sin. And grant that this child, now to be baptized therein, may receive the fullness of thy grace, and ever remain in the number of thy faithful and elect children, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Very similar, almost identical. The Roman Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1257, it says, The Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. He also commands his disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations and to baptize them. Baptism is necessary for salvation for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and to have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament. The church does not know of any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. This is why she takes care not to neglect the mission she has received from the Lord to see that all who can be baptized are reborn of water and of the Spirit. And what does the Anglican baptism say? The Book of Common Prayer. Dearly beloved, for as much as all men are conceived and born in sin, and that our Saviour Christ saith, none can enter into the kingdom of God except he be regenerate and born anew of water and of the Holy Ghost. I beseech you to call upon God the Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that of his bounteous mercy he will grant to this child that thing which by nature he cannot have that he may be baptized with water and the Holy Ghost and received into Christ's Holy Church and be made a lively member of the same. 
just again, not an awful lot of difference between those two uh, declarations. You see, there's very little difference in the beliefs. Both churches state that baptism is necessary for salvation. Just to go over what the Anglican Catechism says about that. How many sacraments are there? Two only that are generally necessary for salvation. That is to say, baptism and supper of the Lord. How many sacraments? Two only that are generally necessary to salvation. That is to say, baptism and supper of the Lord. The catechism don't say, what is your name? My name is so-and-so. Who gave you this name? My godfathers and godmothers in my baptism. When I was made a member of Christ, the child of God and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. That's from the Anglican catechism. See, I trust that these comments and our study so far from the word of God will help each of us to understand the plain teaching of Scripture on this important subject of being born again. Baptism in Scripture is not a sign of new life, but a sign of death. Death to sin, self and the flesh. I want to read some verses from Romans Romans chapter 6 and reading from verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Before we trusted Christ, we were seen by God as being in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15:22 For as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive Before we trusted God we were treated as being in Adam dead spiritually dead but now we are in Christ we have been made alive in Christ. We are a completely new creation in Jesus Christ. 
Verse 2 says, We are now dead to sin. God sees us as people who are dead to sin, dead to the Adam life, and alive in Christ. That's how God looks at us. We People who are dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ, in Christ. We should have no more desire for the things of, wor- of the world as a dead man does. And because of this, Paul asks, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? There was apparently people said, well, if God's grace has to be poured out on us, it doesn't matter if we sin, God's grace will abound more in us. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, he says. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We're under a new ruler. We have moved from the kingdom of darkness and Satan and moved into the kingdom of God. So we are not bound by the laws of Satan because we have moved into the kingdom of God. So we should not desire the things of the old kingdom but dwell in the kingdom and the blessings of the new kingdom. We as Christians have a responsibility to live as those who are dead to sin. Paul says later on in this chapter, reckon yourself as dead to sin. So again, what happens when we become born again believers? It is spoken here as of being baptized into Christ. We identify with him in his death for us and his burial. Realizing that we have died to sin in his death and in his burial. And through his glorious resurrection we also now live in him. We're alive in him. Because he has risen from the dead. Not because Mary has gone to heaven. Nothing erroneous like that. But because of Christ's glorious resurrection, we now live in him. We have been made alive in Christ. We were dead in Adam. But in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, we have been made alive. And this truth, Christ's death, burial and resurrection is demonstrated in what we call believer's baptism. It doesn't, a baptism doesn't save us. Our salvation has already been attained. Our baptism is a picture of the fact Not that we're going to be saved, but it's a picture of the fact that we already are born again. We are born again when we accept Christ's finished work at Calvary. His death, burial, resurrection and ascension to heaven. And so our Christian baptism is a graphic illustration of that spiritual truth. 
It cannot convey the forgiveness of sins. Because we already have our salvation. And this is a picture of what has happened to you and to me. When it's a picture of us dying to Christ and being raised again. Just as he was raised, we go into the waters of baptism. A picture of death. Death to the world. Death to sin. And we are raised up alive in Jesus Christ. That's the illustration of believer's baptism. It doesn't give us salvation. It's a picture of what has happened to us. And we're demonstrating it before the public. What that means. Listen carefully. The believer already has through Christ many, many blessings. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. 1 Peter 5.14 Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you and all that are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ and Christ dwells within us. But God recognizes us not as being in Adam but in the heavenlies in Christ. And I hope that's clear. We're going to read from the book of Romans again, chapter 6. We're going to read this chapter. And it explains it very clearly what baptism is. Now, reading from verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now if we be dead with Christ. We shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead. Dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died. He died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon, count, impute, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. 
For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. We're not under the kingdom of Satan. We've moved from the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. But as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now, Yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What, what was the result then of those things whereof ye are now ashamed? The end of those things ended in death. But now, this is wonderful, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness. It should produce in your life, he's saying, holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord.